they ask that we not applaud. But we can applaud God, I think, and for the gift of uh, his grace in Jesus Christ. Let's do that. Thank you for your offering of praise, choir. Uh, welcome. Uh, I, I guess this is the biggest preview day uh, ever at Westmont, some 300 folks previewing, and uh, we welcome you here. Uh -huh. It's a great place, and we, uh, we know you'll just want to apply and beg for admission because it's a great place to be. We're moving through the Old Testament in chapel as I uh, preach uh, roughly weekly through a semester. And we've been spending a lot of time on the, uh, the character and the life of Abraham. Why? Well, because Abraham is uh, considered in the uh, Old and New Testaments as sort of exhibit A of faith. And faith is a very, very important thing. Just how important is faith? Well, I'll quote you one of many passages I could quote, but Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. We are saved by God's free gift of grace in Jesus Christ, but we receive the gift through faith. That's how important faith is. Take another passage, the most familiar verse in the, old, the entire New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, another faith word, should not perish but have everlasting life. Now maybe you notice these two words in those two passages I quoted. Saved and perish. The thing that stands between us and perishing is God's gift given to us received by faith. That's how important faith is. Without it, We perish. In fact, the contrast here is shall not perish but have everlasting life as opposed to what? Everlasting death. Now let's just get our minds around this just to remind ourselves how important it is that we understand what faith is all about. Eternity. How can we think about eternity? Don't think about it before you go to sleep at night. It might keep you awake. It's just, uh, it's just one of those things that can become obsessive in its enormity. Uh, one way I've found to think about it is this way. Uh, is imagine a seagull flying across the universe leisurely past the galaxies to the opposite side of the universe, and there it comes upon a planet the size of the Earth made of solid diamond. As it approaches the planet, it flies around the globe, again, just kind of basic seagull pace. And as it comes around the edge of the planet, it just brushes this diamond planet with its wing. And then it continues back to where it started. You feel the weight of it? Then it turns around and repeats the journey across the galaxies to this diamond-hard planet on the opposite side. It flies around it and brushes the edge of the planet as it heads back to where it started. The time it will take that seagull to wear that planet down to nothing 
It's just the first breath of eternity. There's a lot at stake when we start thinking about faith. We start thinking about God's gift, which delivers us, that takes us out of that kind of death into eternal life. It is a matter of life or death for eternity. Abraham, we're told, is exhibit A of this saving faith. And Paul says that if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are children of Abraham. Genesis 15, 6. God made a big promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed it. And the Bible says God reckoned him as righteous because he believed. He simply trusted God's promise. Did you know uh, that you know what is the uh, Hebrew word for faith? Amen. That's the word. I think it's fascinating that wherever the faith of the Bible goes in the world, no matter what the language is, two words stay the same. Amen and hallelujah. Any place, they're the same. But Abraham amended it. <laughs> and in the sense of the word here, it's a very graphic, pictorial Hebrew word. It's like it, it has the idea of driving a stake into the ground and then lashing a tent to it. Or maybe driving a, a piton into a granite face and stringing your carabiner to it. You, you literally rest your weight on a thing that you have faith in. It's not, it's not cognitive agreement with something. It is resting your existence on what you believe in. When God made His promise to Abraham, the father of us all, who have saving faith, He lashed His life to it. He rested on the promise. And faith is inextricably linked then with hope. Will God do what He says? Has He done what He's claimed to have done? Can we trust Him to do what He says? And what happens? What happens when it appears that he hasn't done what he says he's going to do? In other words, what happens when we have to wait for the promise? What happens when our experience seems to, well, contradict the promise? What can you do when that happens? Answer. You learn to laugh. Yes. You learn to laugh which takes us to the text I want to look at this morning. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 15. It has been 25, excuse me, 24 years since Abraham and Sarah received God's promise that they would have a child and through that child be a nation. 24 years. They get it, well, at least Abraham gets it when he's 75. Sarah, as you will see in this text, will describe herself as a worn-out old woman. <laughs> Those are her words, not mine. He's 99 years old, her husband, and they still don't have a kid. So listen to this marvelous text. Open your Bibles to Genesis 18, and uh, we'll just look at the first 15 verses. But first, hear the story before you look at it. I'll be reciting it out of the uh, New Living translation of the Bible. It says, The Lord 
appeared to Abraham again. While he was camped at the oak grove belonging to Mamre, one day at about noon, while Abraham sat at the entrance to his tent, he suddenly noticed three men standing nearby. He got up and ran to meet them, welcoming them by bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, please stop a while. Rest beneath the shade of this tree while my servants get some water and wash your feet. Let me prepare some food to refresh you. Please stay a while before continuing on your journey. Great picture of uh, Bedouin hospitality here. All right, they said. Do as you have said. So Abraham ran back to the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, get three measures of your finest flour and bake some bread. Husbands have been doing this for centuries, it appears. Then Abraham ran out to the herd, chose a fat calf, and told a servant to hurry up and butcher it. When the food was prepared, he took some cheese curds and milk and the roasted meat, and he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them beneath the trees. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. Well, she's in the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of the men said, About this time next year, I will return, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent nearby. Since Abraham and Sarah were both very old, and Sarah was way past the age of having children, she laughed quietly to herself. How can a worn-out old woman like me have a baby, she thought. And when my my master, my husband, is also so old. Well, apparently there's more to these men than meets the eye because the next line of the text is wonderfully mysterious. It says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, How can a... An old woman like me have a baby. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This time next year, I will return just as I told you. And your wife, Sarah, will have a son. And I love the last line of the story. Sarah was afraid, so she denied that she had laughed. But the man said, That's not true. <laughs> you did laugh. Well, there you have it. What does Sarah's laugh mean? Well, for that matter, what does any kind of laugh mean? You may not know this, but it's a question that's been debated and discussed uh, for literally centuries by philosophers and psychologists, people of the stature of Aristotle and Bergson and Schopenhauer, uh, even Sigmund Freud, 
a man about as humorless as a chicken, uh, wrote, a, wrote an essay entitled, Jokes and the Relation to the Subconscious. Must have been a real side splitter. But it would appear that through all these theories and discussions about what, what makes us laugh, that there are two words that stand out. I want you to think about them for a while. I'm going to learn something very big about faith here. The words are incongruity and surprise. Now, by incongruity, I mean the juxtaposition of two apparently contradictory or unrelated ideas or situations. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. That's the humor there. What's he doing there? Or in a less artistic mode, uh, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. <laughs> so that's the incongruity. It's just you get two things together and they, they seem to contradict one another, but, but the very contradiction is what makes us laugh. And then there's surprise. Something just sort of pops up unexpectedly. It's not what we thought we are going to get, but we get it. And it makes us laugh sometimes. And of course the two are closely related because they both have the effect of sort of jolting us out of the frame of mind that we're in. Woody Allen, I think, is the master of incongruity and surprise. He says things like, I don't believe in an afterlife, but I'm bringing along an extra pair of underwear just in case, you know. Crucial. It is possible to have humor that deals only with the incongruous, but not with surprise. Sarah's laugh. It's that kind of laugh. It's the laugh of a cynic. She can laugh at the preposterousness, the incongruity of an old bag having a baby, of having one foot in the grave and the other foot in the maternity ward, but that's all she can laugh at. She expects no surprises from God, no novelty, no violations of the world that she's gotten used to living in the last 90-plus years. She doesn't expect anything to ever change. She can hear the Lord say, Sarah will have a son and crack up in bitterness. But she can't hear the Lord say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Incongruity is a theological concept. In fact, Reinhold Niebuhr, one of our great theologians of this century, wrote a sermon about humor and faith, and he said that. He said it's, it's a prelude to faith. It's our, our sense of the incongruous that makes us see things in their true light. So when you, when you see an arrogant man with a tuxedo on walking down the street and he slips on a banana peel, we see this clash between his pretensions to greatness and what actually happens to him, and we laugh. When we can apply it to ourselves, we get healthy mentally. When we can stand outside of ourselves and, and see again the disparity between what we think is true and what's actually true. Like the day when we were coming back from vacation in Arizona over spring break years ago. And uh, we went through Blythe, California. This is, uh, this is a vivid moment of incongruity in my life. Uh, we're coming through Blythe. Blythe I, all I know about Blythe is it's got a McDonald's in one of the exits. And uh, you could go in and use the bathroom if you, you know, and not feel too bad about it if you bought, you know, an ice cream cone or something. So, uh, so all six Pattersons got out of the car. This was uh, about 16 years ago. And uh, we're standing in the crowded, you know, dining area of McDonald's, and I'm holding my daughter, two years old, 
standing just outside the, uh, the two doors for the men's and the women's room. And the boys are in the men's room doing God knows what those boys do when they get turned loose in places. And, uh, and Loretta's in the women's room, and I'm standing there holding my little girl, and, and out of the woman's room walks, well, I can only just say it's just a babe. I mean, it's, oh my, she was just wonderful. She, uh, she had obviously been water skiing somewhere and was just tan and beautiful. And she's looking me right in the eye, and she was beaming, just grinning at me. I kind of, wow. Yeah, man, you know, I'm not 40s, you know, but man, the old guy, he hasn't lost it yet, you know, and she's, this babe just can't help but just kind of, no, look at him, you know. And then I, I looked in the mirror along the wall, and I saw what she was looking at. She was looking at a middle-aged man holding his little girl. That's what she was smiling at. Now, she wasn't smiling at a stud. <laughs> she was smiling at a daddy. That was brutally humiliating. <laughs> and it was wonderfully healing and clarifying. I'd rather be a daddy any day than a stud. But it jolted me. It was, it was funny. It was incongruous. Have you ever had things just start falling apart around you? And, 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 it, and it, it just nothing's going right and you kind of stand back from it for a moment and just, you've got two choices. You can start crying, you can shoot yourself, something like that, or you can just start laughing at it. I vote for laughing. It's saved my marriage more than once. Now, stay with me. Let this sense of the incongruous, the ability to stand outside of ourselves and see ourselves for what we really are, let it extend out to the ultimate things of life. And the laughter stops, doesn't it? I mean, standing here on earth and kind of looking down around us, we might feel pretty good about ourselves. But go out to the edge of the universe and look back at yourself. You're just a speck on a speck of a planet. Pascal wrote about it this way. He said, the universe is so big that the center is everywhere, the circumference is nowhere, and who are we in that? What is man? He said, he is a nothing in comparison with the infinite. Wow. Now, the Bible... Psalm 144, verses 3 and 4. O oh Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. Do you feel important? Do you feel powerful or smart or something? Well, just take this into consideration. Your life is a breath. Or this, Psalm 62, verse 9. Low-born men are but a breath, and they know that. The high-born... The rich, the powerful, are but a lie. They, can, they have enough goodies, enough things to make them think that they aren't a breath, but they are. And if weighed on a balance, they are nothing together. They are only a breath. Now, let this sense of the incongruity of your existence take you 
where it's supposed to take you. And where's that? To God. What's the alternative to God here? If we are but a breath, if our life just goes like that, if we just don't last, what's left? There's either God or there's death. There's despair. And the Bible says, go to God. Psalm 73 is one of my favorites. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart forever. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, is there? And how do you answer that question? You say yes. And the world shuts down, the universe is closed, God is no longer God, he's benevolent maybe, he's kindly and concerned perhaps, but he is as weak and as powerless as you are. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Say no, and well, gosh, the world just opens up. It gets big, it gets exciting, it gets dangerous. The possibilities are endless. I mean, wild things happen. I went through the Bible and just looked at all the times that question is put to us or, or that, that statement is made. Next time, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, it's, it's stated as a statement, not a question. Jeremiah is told as Jerusalem is about to be overrun by the Babylonians and the people are being taken off into captivity, God says to Jeremiah a very funny thing. He says, Jeremiah, would you invest in some real estate here? That's like renting a suite of floors in the World Trade Center. But he does. And God says, let this be a sign in the midst of the incongruity of your life of my promise. And Jeremiah writes a prayer when he does it. And he says, with God, nothing is impossible. You know, the next time it happens in the Bible, the teenage girl at her prayer is a virgin. She's going to get pregnant in an unnatural way, a supernatural way. And when she says, how can this be? The angel says, with God, nothing is possible or impossible. My favorite is the rich man who leaves Jesus when he's told he has to part with his riches to follow Jesus. And the disciples look at this happening, and they're, and they're just dumbfounded. I mean, they want somebody with money to be, on, to be part of the group. And Jesus says, you know, it's so hard for rich people. They, it's easier for, for camels to get through the eye of a needle than it is for, for people like that to get into heaven. And, and the disciples are just, oh, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with people, that's impossible. In other words, it's impossible for any of us to be saved. We don't know how to let go of our wealth. We don't know how to let go of ourselves. And then Jesus says this, but with God, all things. Are possible. Now that is a very funny statement. Because what Jesus is saying, poised at the juncture of this needle's eye and this camel, that's incongruous, I'll say. He's saying that camels do get through. 
by the power of God. Now, there's a surprise, right? And in this sense, the gospel is a comedy. It's just the biggest joke in the highest sense of that word in the universe. Silly, sinful, weak little people who don't, I mean, animals know better than we do how to take care of ourselves. Get saved, get crowned, get hope, get glory. <laughs> Isn't that great? Wow. And life, life gets filled with surprises. I want to close with the story of just one. Charles McCoy, age 72, the pastor in Oyster Bay, Long Island, for his entire career as a pastor. Never married, uh, did earn three PhDs, however, at Ivy League schools in the East Coast. He hit 72 at the Baptist church that, well, not, not the Baptist church is the only ones to do this, but they, they mandate retirement at age 72. He said, you've got to retire. And he thought, my heavens, I'm, I'm still feeling good. And I, they want me to go down to Florida and, and do lawn bowling or something. And he's so depressed about this. And, and then, then he began to think, you know, I haven't led many people to Christ. I never married. It. I've just done these doctorates, and, and now they want me to quit. About this time, at the depth of his depression, a, a man from East India, East Indian, came to his church and spoke at the church, and McCoy took him out to dinner after church, and they got to talking, and at one point, Charles just sort of shared his heart with a message, and I got, they're making me retire. And the Indian said, well, hey, come to my country. When people get old, they get respected. McCoy thought about it, decided he'd do it. Went to his elders and said, you know, when I retire, I'm going to go to India and preach. They were aghast. They said, what if you die in India? with humor again. And McCoy said, it's as, it's, as, it's as close to heaven from Calcutta as it is from Oyster Bay, New York. So he got everything he could in one big steamer truck, trunk, and he shipped off to India, landed in Bombay, got off the boat, and somebody had stolen his trunk. He's 72 years old. All he has now is an address and his wallet. So he gets on a bus, and if you've been to India, you know what those buses are like, and he gets on his bus, and he tries to find this address, and he's traveling, and he gets off the bus at the address, and somebody's picked his pocket. He doesn't have a wallet. He has no money. All he has is an address, and he finds the house that he goes up to. He knocks on the door. He had sent them letters of introduction, and uh, the, opened the door. They had no idea who he was. They'd never, they hadn't gotten the letters. But they were Christians, and they were missionaries, and they invited him in, and Asked him what he's going to do. He said, I don't know. Maybe tomorrow I'll go down and see if I can meet with the mayor of the city. Well, he said, we've been here 15 years, and he just will not meet with any of us. McCoy said, well, I'll try. So the next day he went down to City Hall in Bombay and uh, asked if he could meet with the mayor. And the receptionist said, well, uh, who are you? He said, I'm Dr. Charles McCoy. And he put down a card, and it listed some of his PhDs. And... She took it back and showed it to the mayor. And, he, and who is he? He said, well, he says he's just a missionary, but look at all these doctor's degrees. He must be somebody important. Exactly, he's not giggling yet. Okay. <laughs> he granted him an interview the next day, actually a lunch, 
where he invited the city fathers. And it just so happened in Calcutta or Bombay, there was the head of what India's, or the, the, the version of, of West Point was there. He heard McCoy give his testimony. He invited him to come and preach to the, the young men in training for the army. He was invited to give weeks of meetings. This launched a 16-year career of preaching in India. He started churches in Calcutta and in Malaysia. When he was 88 years old, he was on his way to preach someplace. He checked into a hotel, took a nap that afternoon, died in his sleep. Everything he owned was in his room. That is the silliest thing a man could ever do, isn't it? And God's surprise is that camels get through the eyes of needles. Little people, ordinary people, do extraordinary things because it pleases God to give us his joy. That's what faith is all about. Amen? Let's stand. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit give us great faith and peace and laughter today and forever. Amen.